Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, Prove It. In this five-part series, we'll see how God's Word instructs and equips us to live with the various challenges to our faith. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning to everybody here in the house, as well as those of you online. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. And we're in the middle of this series from the letter of 1 John, and we're calling it Prove It because so much of what John teaches on, he's basically saying, listen, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at this idea that God is truth and what it means to walk in the truth. Now, the reality is, I think we all recognize that, is that truth is under attack. In fact, recently I read a story that illustrates how truth can be relativized in our world. So let me share it with you. Uh, Roger Weingert is a uh, philosophy professor at the University of Illinois, and often he begins his introductory ethics class by asking how many of the students believe that truth is relative. Now, a show of hands usually reveals that two-thirds to three-fourths of the class believe that truth is relative. And so after discussing the syllabus, the testing, the dates, the grades, the papers, and the content of the course, Professor Weingart informs the class that they will be graded according to their height. When a smart-alecky tall kid loudly agrees with this system, the professor adds, Short students will get A's and tall students will flunk. So uh, invariably what happens is students raise their hands and say, your grading system isn't fair. I'm not the professor, retorts Weingart. I I am the professor, retorts Weingart. I can grade however I wish. And then the students insist, but what you ought to do is grade according to how well we learn the material. You should look at our papers and our exams and see how well we have understood the content of the course, and that grade should reflect it. And all the class nods in affirmation, especially the tall kids. Uh, but then Professor Weingart replies, by using words like should and ought, You betray your alleged conviction that truth is relative. If you were a true relativist, you would realize that there is no external standard to which my grading should conform. If my truth and my ethic lead me to an alternate grading system that you deem inappropriate, say, la vie, I can grade however I wish. So, Uh, Obviously, you see that this story demonstrates that moral relativism is unlivable. And yet, as I say that, this relativism is all around us. And it undermines what we all understand is truth. And so, we're going to dig in to 1 John. And we're going to look at the fact that there actually is an absolute truth, that there is not just a relativity to truth. And to start this off, we're going to talk about this. God is truth. Now, in Scripture, in the, the prophet Isaiah refers to God as truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all referred to as truth. Uh, but God is called the God of truth by the prophet Isaiah. Remember this, that, that Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then both in the the first letter of John as well as the gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is referred to time and time again as the spirit of truth. So, So we understand that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are truth, that God is truth. Now, Let's explore this a little bit more about what it means to say God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit are truth. So first we need to understand that to say that God is something is to make a statement about the nature of God's being or God's existence. To say God is truth means he is always true and that he never lies. The the author of the book of Romans actually tells us that he tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Why? Because God is truth. Now, on several occasions, Jesus tells us things that reveal that God the Father is truth. Now, speaking about what he knows, Jesus refers to the Father saying, I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. At another time, Jesus prayed to God the Father saying this, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So this makes sense. If God is truth, then what he teaches, his word, spoken and written in scripture, are true. Now to say that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are truth means that they are truth in accordance with both fact and reality. In other words, there's no relativity to this. So the Hebrew word for truth is emeth, and which uh, means this. It means to be firm, to be reliable, to be stable, to be faithful. So take a moment to consider this then. When we say that God is truth with regards to each of these defining words, let's think about what it means. When we say that God is truth, that it means he's firm, that means he's never going to waver. He's not going to be wishy-washy about what is truth. To to say that God is reliable means that what he says he is and what he will do means that we can rely on God. When we say that God is truth, meaning he's stable, that means he's not weak. He, He won't falter physically, spiritually, emotionally. God is stable for us. To say that that God is faithful means that we can trust him. We can trust his word. We can trust the goodness of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word for truth is aletheia, and it denotes the idea of not just being truthful, but being upright and having nothing to hide. So when we understand that truth means that God is upright, that means he's honest. He's going to Uh, let us know everything. He's never going to tell a lie. To to say that that God has nothing to hide means that, again, what we see is what we get, and and he's always going to be forthright and honest with us. Now, the most important, and for many people, the most challenging verse about God being the truth came from the very lips of Jesus. I, I read it a minute ago, but I'll read it again. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus says that he is the only way to God and and thus the only way to eternal life, 
many people push back on that and they say, well, that, that's way too exclusive. It rubs against many people's uh, universalist desires that, that say that all religions are, or all paths go to God and go to heaven. But, but Jesus' message was definitive. And, and yes, it, it is exclusive. Uh, to say that Jesus is the life is exciting because everyone wants life and everybody wants that abundant life, but everybody wants that life according to what they believe a perfect, abundant life looks like. And it has a very inclusive feel to say that Jesus is the life because everybody wants that. Through the world's view of what life look, should look like, uh, then nothing like uh, Jesus, it should look like nothing what Jesus gives us. It just be whatever we like, whatever makes us happy. But let's be honest with ourselves. Uh, you know, we wish we could have our own vision of what a perfect life looks like. And that life would look like having the happiness and the things that we believe will make us happy. But we understand that really that's, that's make-believe because that's really what, not what real life is about. So, Going back to what Jesus said, in between the word way and in between the word life was a third word. So uh, way was exclusive, life was inclusive, and then there's this word truth in the middle, and, and it's, it's a powerful defining word. It, it creates a connection between way and life that helps us understand thing and things. Truth, we understand, yes, gives us life, and we understand as Jesus has shown us the true way to God that gives us the true life. Now, let's be completely honest about the way this world looks at truth. As I said, it's been under attack, and it's been under attack for, for years. Uh, in fact, if we want to look to Scripture, we can see all the way back to the time of the judges that we understand that 1,500 plus years before Jesus came to earth, people were already making truth relative. Because we read several times in the book of Judges, when it came to Israel, it says that everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. They were making their own truth. They were saying, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and that really describes what we see today in our day and age. As I said, truth is under attack. People will make truth relative by saying, you know, this is true for me, but it may not be true for you. Or they may say something to this effect that uh, uh, truth is what I say it is. Or you may have heard somebody say, speak your truth. Our culture, our culture wants to redefine truth and say that whatever you want it to be is what truth is. But if that's the case, then that means there's no absoluteness to what is true. You know, when somebody speaks, speak your truth, that thought and that phrase is a cultural statement that undermines the absolute nature of truth. It's promoting the idea that everyone has their own truth, but that's not accurate. We may have our own perspective on what truth is, but truth is not relative. We understand 
that our culture and the politics of our world and even secular teaching want to make truth relative, but God makes it clear in his word that there is an absolute truth. Um, so let, let me just pause on this idea that truth, people want to make truth relative and talk about some ways that uh, we do that. First, we make truth relative when we make contradictions. We can't say the world is flat and the world is round. Those statements contradict each other and only, we have to understand that only one of them can be truth. So there's a logic to truth and logic can be reduced to a simple axiom of saying uh, the, uh, called the law of non-contradiction. In other words, for something to be true, it can't be contradicted. So it must, rip, must apply to reality. But when we try to say that uh, my way, world can be flat and your world can be round, we're relativizing truth. The second way we relativize truth is when we make it subjective. When we make subjective claims based on our, perf- our personal preferences. For example, uh, you may say chocolate ice cream is the best flavor in the world. And according to your preferences, you can believe that, but there's, uh, uh, that's a, subject, a subjective idea of truth. The reality is statements of truth can easily change when we base them on subjectivity, when we say this is what I want versus this is what you want. We live in a world where people like to do that over and over, but we have to understand that truth is not subjective, it's objective. The third way we make truth relative is when we make it about us. You know, we're free to have all of the subjective preferences that we want, uh, free to make that decision about religion, about politics, and about morality, because we're given that freedom to choose, but objective truth is not swayed by our personal views or even by the collective view of society. So those who argue that truth is subjective are espousing a a form of relativism. Now, as I said, this has been around for a long time, and Pastor John Piper points out that the seeds of our relativistic thinking begin when we stop using our minds to embrace God's truth and instead actually begin to use our minds to protect ourselves and our preferences and our point of views. And, And he illustrates that. Uh, actually, by, by going to God's word and taking an experience that happened during Jesus' ministry on earth when he was teaching at the temple. And on this day that he was teaching, the chief priests and some of the teachers of the law came and they asked him, they said, by, by what authority do you have to preach here? And Jesus responded. This is the way he responded. He said, I'm going to ask you a question also. And if you answer that question, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And this is what he said. He said, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from human origin? Now, the the chief priests and and, uh, the teachers of the law and the elders gathered around to discuss their answer. And they did this not because they wanted to say what was true, but because they realized They needed to protect themselves. And so the discussion went something like this. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe John the Baptist when he came? 
But if we say he was of human origin, then the people will rebel because they hold John the Baptist to be a prophet. And so after they had this discussion, their answer was this, we don't know. So again, this isn't full-blown relativism, what, the, what is going on here, but it's the kind of thinking that leads to it. The priests and the elders uh, knew what was the answer, and they actually knew what the right answer was, but they didn't want to give it because they wanted to protect themselves, and they wanted to keep doing what they were doing the way they want to do it. And so you begin to see that relativism really comes when we want to justify our behavior, our thinking, our rights, whatever it is. That's how truth becomes relativized. Now, we know that truth from all of this is absolute. And God tells us in his word that when it comes to truth, we need to walk in the truth. In other words, we need to live in the truth. So let me go to the first letter of John, and I want to share with you some of the ways that John frames this. So in the first, uh, in John 1, in the second chapter, this is what he writes. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So John, in this letter, is pointing out why knowing the truth and walking in the truth are so important. Because truth becomes a dividing line. For followers of Jesus, we've been anointed, he says, by God, which means we've been given the Holy Spirit when we came to believe in him, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, and the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth about Jesus and what it means to be a faithful follower to him. So John draws this line in the sand, and he says that if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth. And he made it clear that if we deny Jesus is the Messiah, then we don't have the Father. In other words, he's saying that you're not saved. You don't have the promise of eternal life. You have not received what was offered because you're denying that it's true. And he uses strong language. He says, if you deny this, you're an antichrist. Now, in John's worldview, there wasn't one antichrist. There, there could be many people who would deny the truth about Jesus and about God's word, and he would call them antichrist, even though he said at some point in future there would be uh, the big and great antichrist that would come. So, uh, in this letter, remember also that John is addressing false teachers who aren't teaching the truth. They're teaching falsehood and lies, and... The reality is, this false teaching, he understands, has eternal consequences. Because people who are believing their lies won't be saved. They won't receive the promise of eternal life. Now, if we think, wow, I'm so glad that happened so long ago and and that that doesn't happen today, we actually have to recognize that false teachers and false teaching probably is more prolific today than it was in John's day. 
Today, there are false teachers and uh, there are teachings that are being normalized more than there were in the first century. There are cults, there are uh, world religions and philosophical views that, that don't teach the truth. There are also people who consider themselves followers of Jesus, but they take God's word and they twist it to their own liking to make it relative to what they want their life to be about and what they want to justify in their actions. The Bible tells us this. This is such a powerful statement. It's not going to be on the screen, but the Bible tells us this from the Apostle Paul. He says, there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine, in other words, biblical truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. He's saying, listen, there's going to come a time when people are going to twist God's word. They're going to twist what they hear from scripture. They're going to they're going to make it what they want to make it instead of letting God speak truth to us. And they're going to find teachers and people who will justify that. Now, when we twist the meaning of God's word or when we add to it or we omit parts of it to make it palatable for ourselves, we're not following the truth of God's word. This is just like the, the worldview of our culture when it uses the word truth and makes it relative because basically they're saying, listen, this is true for me. It may not be true for you, but this is my truth. But there can't be hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of different truths if we understand that truth is absolute. So John tells us that there is truth from God and that truth requires a response from us to believe it and embrace it. And when we do that, we're walking in the truth. Now, throughout his letter, John talks about how we walk in the truth. So I want to point out several things that are key for us. And then the first things he tells us is this, is that we need to address our sins. Now, if you've been with me the last couple of weeks and hearing these messages, you may say it's like a broken record because I keep coming back and talking about how we need to address our sins. But, but that's so important because our response to our sinfulness is very telling. Because to recognize our sins means we recognize that there are truths about what is sin and what is not sin. So this is what John writes. He says, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Now, this may be shocking to some of us, but not everyone embraces the truth of Scripture that says that all humans, all of us, are sinners. Now, some people think that because they're basically good people, they don't, they don't do anything that's all that bad, so they don't need to deal with their sins, uh, much less address it with confession or repentance. But a biblical worldview says that the truth is every human being who has ever lived, that is living, that will live, is sinful. That, that we're all sinners and that our sin needs to be addressed 
regardless of how great the sin is or how small the sin is, because our sin separates us from God. And even if we thought that we could outdo the bad things by doing good things, the Bible makes it clear that we're still sinners and that we need a Savior. And so we need to turn to Jesus who who died to pay the price for our sins and ask for forgiveness, accept that forgiveness, and begin to seek to repent, to turn around and away from those sinful ways. When we deny our sinful nature, we're being ignorant and in itself we're being sinful because we're not embracing the truth of God's word. Now, this addresses one of the ways people relate to sin by denying that they have sin. There's also another side of that, which is to be overwhelmed by our sinfulness. When, when we're overwhelmed by our sinfulness and we become paralyzed by the truth that we are sinners and we feel like we can't do anything for fear of sinning, we're not walking in the truth that God has sent us a Savior who has paid for our sinfulness and is willing to forgive us so that we can walk in freedom from the penalty of our sin. So when we acknowledge our sinfulness, it's basically saying this, we're going to deal with it. We're going to recognize that we have done wrong and we're going to do whatever it takes. So that means we need to, we need to spend some time looking at our lives, recognizing what we have done or that we should have done that causes us to sin and confess it. And to repent means to turn around from that behavior, not to continue to repeat it. But then we have to actually deal with what our sin may have done. It may have damaged a relationship with another person, and we need to, to rectify that. We need to apologize. Uh, we, we may have uh, done something that has uh, damaged someone to the point where restitution needs to be made for whatever it is, for damaged property or injury to somebody the fact is also that if it's a criminal or if it has taken us into a court of law, we may have to deal with the consequences and pay the price through some penalty that the legal system wants us. The reality is, is that our sinfulness has consequences. First and foremost, it separates us from God, so we need to deal with that by confessing our sins and repenting. But then we also realize that it affects how we love other people and we have to be willing to do that. So when it comes to our sinfulness, we have to address our sins. That's one of the ways that we walk in the truth. Another way that we walk in the truth, it's going to seem simple, but let's look at it. It's to obey God's commandments. Now, as I said, it seems simple because this is obvious, but it's something that humans struggle with. John says, if someone claims, I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. A little later in 1 John, he says, Dear children, let's not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. So knowing God means we will obey God and God's word. So if you want to know if you know God, see if, you're, if you know his commands and see if you're obeying his commands if we say we know him, we will prove it by following his commands. And John points at one command specifically. He points at the, the command that we will love others. He says, if you don't love others, you're not obeying God's commands. Now, 
he's actually repeating what he heard from Jesus. When John walked with Jesus as one of his disciples, he heard Jesus talk about how we're supposed to love God and how we're supposed to love others. And we heard, and he heard Jesus say these very words. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus wanted his disciples then and his disciples now and in the future to know the freedom and what it means to know the teaching and commands of Jesus and live in those. Those scriptures are teaching us something, some important things. First, they tell us that we can't know God unless we're following his commandments. If we're not following him, we're demonstrating that we don't really know anything about God or what he desires. If we say we know him and don't follow his commandments, as John says, we're lying and we're not living in the truth. So we follow those commands. The the second thing this tells us is that Jesus teaches us the truth and following his teaching means we're walking in the truth as his disciples. And, and, And here's the most exciting thing it tells us. When we know the truth of what it means to believe in Jesus and follow him and we live in that, that sets us free. It sets us free because we know God and God's word. We know what it means to follow him and we know how to follow him and how to walk in the truth. Think about this. Have you ever considered that knowing that God's, knowing God's word and that his commandments are absolute truth means that we know how to live our lives? We're not constantly having to, to figure out what is right or wrong. We know the truth and if we walk in the truth, It sets us free. It gives us a freedom that we don't have to make those decisions because he has shown us the way. This is the total opposite of what we saw in that story where Jesus was asked by what authority he taught because the elders and the teachers and the chief priests wanted to try to catch him in a trap. And when he asked that question in response to their question, they knew what was right. But if they answered what was right... They knew it was going to cost them something and they didn't want that. And so they weren't walking in freedom because they were trying to make everything about them. They wanted to do what they wanted to do and make truth relative so that they could have the power and control that they desired. But if they just answered the truth, it would have set them free. We walk in truth and freedom when we obey God's commandments. The final thing that John wants us to know is this. He tells us that we are to acknowledge Jesus. So John's been dealing with some of those false teachers, and he writes this. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. So he's talking about people who claim to be a prophet. He could be talking about teachers and preachers also. But the reality is, is we need to personalize this because the fact is anyone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't acknowledge the truth about who Jesus was, is, and will always be is not walking in the truth. And knowing who Jesus was, is, and always will be guides us in the way of truth. And it gives us the reality that now that we know the truth about Jesus, we can apply that to our lives. 
When the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, one of his young leaders in training, the, the man Timothy, he said this. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the truth, the word of truth. Whether or not you consider yourself on par with Paul's protege, Timothy, we all have to recognize that it's an important directive there that we need to be able to handle the word of truth well. In other words, to read it, to study it, and to apply it to our lives and live it out. Correctly handling the word of truth starts when we acknowledge that the Bible is God's word and that it reveals God's truth to us about who Jesus is, that we believe in him, we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and we begin to follow him, recognizing that he is the one that God sent to save the world from eternal damnation. And this all happens when we take in God's word and believe what it says about Jesus. You know, scripture tells us over and over that God is truth and we are called as his followers to walk in the truth. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up to prepare for our final song, but I wanna give you some important things that we need to embrace First and foremost, we need to recognize that God is the truth. We see that in Scripture, that it tells us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the truth, and that truth is absolute. And to walk in that truth means that we're going to follow and obey the commandments that God has revealed to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. So let me give you some practical challenge and encouragement. First of all, we need to be reading God's Word on a regular basis. We can't absorb the truth unless we actually spend some time taking it in. And some of you may push back, so Clark, I'm just not a great reader. Well, you can also listen to it. You know, through the technologies that we have today, you can let scripture be read to you through a computer program. So the opportunities are there. Now, as I say that, the reality is this. Many people tell me one of the practices they do with their reading of scripture is they don't read it electronically. They get a hard copy of the Bible and they read it. And their, their motto is this, Bible before phone, or it could be any electronic device. So that would be my encouragement and my challenge to you is if you want to walk in the truth, you need to immerse yourself in God's absolute truth, his word. And as you read it, and as you discover things, write it down and See how you can apply it. Do whatever it takes to walk in the truth and share that with others. Let me close with a, with a prayer. And for that prayer, if you've never told Jesus that you want to believe in him and follow him, I'm going to give you the opportunity to start that today. And then I'm going to pray and ask that God would help each one of us walk steadfastly in the truth. So let's pray. God, as we come into this place today and we've heard that you are the truth and we see the absolute nature of your truth, we want to walk in that. And for anybody who has never decided to believe and follow in Jesus, Lord, I'm going to give them the opportunity to, to do that today. So if that's you, I invite you to pray these phrases silently back to God wherever you are. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
I accept his forgiveness for my sins. And I want to follow him for the rest of my life. Well, in that prayer, now, Lord, I pray for each one of us. We know that your word is truth. We know that you are truth. Holy Spirit, prompt us, guide us, nudge us, teach us from God's word to walk in the truth each and every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.